My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have a degree in international affairs, and I'm here with Walter Hagritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze how to understand the Nord Stream sabotage through the lens of the Western bubble. Because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Balder, first off, why are we speaking about this topic today? Hi, Dario. Good to be here again. Uh, well, it's back in the news. Uh, after four months of basically a blackout in uh, mainstream media without any interest shown in the, in this very interesting journalistic question... Um, Hirsch, a famous journalist who goes all the way back to the Vietnam War and um, exposing the My Lai massacre at the time, uh, published on his own website a investigative report on this. And um, that has put it back into the perspective of, of, of media. Or before we start talking about the topic of today's episode, let's answer the... What is the question of the week? So this week's question of the week comes from a listener from Madrid. How does Europe deal with the need for skilled immigration? Boller, how, how do we how do we deal with immigrants and especially skilled immigrants? Well, actually, I was about to say uh, maybe we should take the skilled away because if you look at the current situation of Europe, at least many parts of Europe are desperate, desperate for any kind of labor, whether it's skilled or not, right? Uh, there, there used to be this idea that we should encourage people with a university degree or people with technical skills because that is good, but people without those skills are not welcome because they only are drained on the economy. That was always a distorted view of reality. But certainly now in 2023, what you see all over the place is that basic labor is lacking basic people to uh, security guards um ba you know whether you're talking about airports and where do you, or whether you talk about uh, cleaners or whether you talk about the very basic jobs that society requires there is a lack of them and so uh, to answer this i would i would argue we should talk about immigration and labor in general and not just skilled immigration right so if we have this real demand um You know, you see this everywhere. You look, you look I mean, into the windows of different shops, and there's always a sign we're searching for for people. Then, what's the Western bubble perspective and the Western bubble problem with getting more 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 immigrants into into Europe? Well, in some ways, it's it's a bubble rather than a Western bubble because it does exist in other societies as well. It's this idea of the other, right? We have to identify ourselves as a society with certain characteristics um, it's increasingly diverse for, fortunately enough but there are still certain characteristics about you know the, the judeo-christian background and things like that and we define people who come from the outside as the other we we believe that they're not really part of our way of thinking and therefore even though from a practical perspective we see that there is this real need to get young people into our society to do work that needs to be done just purely an economic requirement, we find it psychologically within our bubble difficult to accept those people because we're afraid of that changing the nature of who we are, of, of, of being a danger somehow. And then you get into this really ugly psychological 
patterns that exist in way too many people where, oh, if they come from the outside, if they're just looking for work, then they're likely to be more aggressive. They're more likely to turn into the criminal circuit. All those kinds of prejudices against people who are not us. And, and therefore we are blocked in doing the practically necessary thing. You could also argue the morally necessary thing, but certainly the practically necessary thing of opening our borders more because we do not realistically assess the nature of those people coming in. See, but that's very interesting um, because there has been a change, that at least I would say, from, from my personal observation of society because, I mean, 15 years ago, it was more a focus on, oh, outsiders will take our jobs away. So that's why we don't want them. And now, given that the reality is different, that there are, I mean, we would be grateful if someone would take these jobs away. Uh, there's still some opposition to receiving immigrants. Because now they take our society away, right? So now it's no longer about jobs. They, and that is typical, right? The, the outsider, the other, always takes something away. It's always a threat to you somehow. Uh, that And that's exactly why we are so detached from reality. And that's why you can have open one newspaper and on one side of the page, it talks about uh, how important it is to control immigration. And on the other side, it uh, talks about the incredible need for labor in certain sectors of the economy. And this was always very, very clearly visible in Brexit as well. The, the, the almost paradoxical nature of Brexit that on the one hand, Britain desperately needs cheap labor. On the other hand, Brexit was executed based on the idea that foreigners need to stay out. Those two things are not compatible with each other, but somehow in our deluded bubble thinking, um, they become a joint reality. And with this, I believe we have sufficiently answered this week's question of the week. In case any other listeners are interested in submitting a question, please send an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com. And I think we are good to move on to today's topic. And as always, we're starting with... And what are the facts? The Nord Stream sabotage refers to the alleged bombings of the two Nord Stream pipelines transporting gas from Russia to Europe. On September 26th of 2022, a series of explosions and subsequent underwater gas leaks occurred on the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipelines. Since then, separate investigations from Germany, Denmark and Sweden have found that these were in fact deliberate explosions. However, no government report about who executed these have been shared yet. The last time we, in this podcast, spoke about the sabotage of the Nord Stream 2 pipelines was in episode 22, where we analyzed the interests and capabilities of the stakeholders involved. We concluded that Ukraine has a high interest in the sabotage, but low capabilities. Germany has no interest in the sabotage and low capabilities. In Russia, we refer to the Kremlin and non-Kremlin actors, and the interest in doing this would be ambiguous at best, but with high capabilities. We refer to the United Kingdom, which has high interest in the sabotage and moderate capabilities. And finally, the United States has a high interest in the sabotage and high capabilities of executing an operation like that. Now, this topic is back in the news, because on February 8th, Pulitzer-winning journalist Seymour Hirsch published an article titled How America Took Out the Nord Stream Pipeline, where he quoted an anonymous source with direct knowledge of the operational planning. In his article, Hirsch lays out how U.S. divers, with the help of Norway, planted explosives with a remote detonator on the pipes during a NATO exercise in the Baltics a few months prior to the explosions. He concluded that the decision to blow up the pipeline came directly from President Biden. 
The reaction to this article in the Western world ranged from denial of all the allegations from the US government and the Norwegian government to silence from most other governments. Western media outlets picked up on the story, but overall referred to Hearst's claims as conspiratorial. Finally, the Kremlin responded to the article by saying this comes as no surprise and that the actors must be punished. Moving on to the second category. What is the bubble? I think before we start um, on the topic, it is very important, at least we feel like it's very important to say that we are not drawing any direct conclusions from this article. This is a singular source and, you know, he's quoting an anonymous source and only one source. So, you know, we, we don't want to fall into the trap that maybe people who follow conspiracy theories fall into where they solely rely on one single source. Absolutely. And in any case, we would not have any basis to assess the validity since we don't have any inside information about these items. Very few people do, which is exactly one of the problems. So it's not really up to us and it's not really an interesting conversation to say how much of it is absolutely true or how much of it is absolutely wrong. But what we can do is look at the bigger picture of what's happening with respect to this topic, right? So let's start um, by looking at the reactions to the article. So I already outlined a few of them, um, but let's be a bit more concrete. So the White House uh, dismissed them as utterly false and complete fiction, while Norway's foreign ministry said the allegations were nonsense. And I assume you would suspect that, right? I mean, there's nothing that comes to as a surprise from these reactions. No, and that doesn't give us much information either way. Um, sometimes these these statements by uh, government agencies are absolutely true. So in that case, they it's possible that they mean it, that it's utterly false from their perspective, uh, or they are lying to us, which also there are more than enough examples in recent history of government statements eventually turning out to be false. So that's not something that is particularly relevant for our analysis here. You would expect them to say that. Okay, we'll take that as something we've heard. Now we move on to the better analysis. And why do why did other countries or other governments not react to it? Because so, for example, the German government, you know, there was no public statement, which I can understand. I'm pretty sure governments have better things to do than to uh, comment on every single article published. But uh, I mean, if there were basically questions about it, it seldomly came from from journalists. It usually came from the left or the right wing extremes of governments. But there were no real reactions. No, and those reactions were actually uh, more muted now than they were four months ago. And, and I, that is that is an interesting observation, right? So you would expect governments, uh, if they are comfortable in the idea that this obviously isn't true, to just put out a statement saying, um, in, in question to a journalist, if someone in parliament or a journalist asks questions to say, this is clearly not true. Um, I would very much encourage you not to continue down this path because you're just talking nonsense. And uh, let's talk about more important issues. But most governments that are not directly involved, unlike the United States and Norway, obviously, um, at, at least in the allegations, take a step back and say, well, uh, we'll wait. We'll wait for the outcomes of the of the investigations from Sweden, from Denmark, and from Germany. Uh, we're not going to speculate any further. We're, we've got no interest in taking a position here, which is interesting, right, at the very minimum, because it shows a certain reluctance in engaging with the issue. 
And then there was one example that you brought up, uh, simply because it's, it was the Dutch government. So I assume there was an hour of questioning the prime minister. And there, someone from the right wing uh, in the parliament questioned Mark Rutte, the Dutch prime minister. And what happened here? What was so interesting? Well, yeah, so first of all, you are generous when you say the right wing. I mean, we're talking about the extreme right, uh, Forum for Democracy. Um, not a particularly pleasant political movement, if you ask me, and a leader not particularly pleasant or an, an intellectual heavyweight, to put it mildly, um, did ask this question because these questions are not coming from the, the, the mainstream parties, right? The reasonable parties, the parties that we feel we can vote for. Uh, those parties didn't ask any questions. The extreme right, in this case, asks a question, um, and essentially saying to the prime minister, have you read this article um, You four months ago? You said that it was complete nonsense. Do you still stand by that? And the prime minister basically refusing to answer, not aggressively going after it, not saying, uh, come on, uh, this, is, this is nonsense, just like I said four months ago. This is nonsense. It was nonsense then and it's nonsense now. No, no, instead being very reluctant to actually answer in, an, in a clear, unambiguous way. Um, and in fact, you see in everything, maybe we can we can link to the YouTube uh, to the to, to the YouTube video of this. Uh, you can see him actually stumbling and feeling uncomfortable in the way he answers and not being particularly convincing. Now that again is something that we should take into account. What is it that it makes you uncomfortable if you feel that this is a complete load of, pardon the language, BS? Uh, then in that case, you could say, look, I'm going to go aggressively after this. I stand by my ally and that's it. Instead, they are very, very uncomfortable in dealing with this at the moment. See, and on this note, uh, just a quick note to our listeners. Um, of course, we will be uh, linking all the relevant articles or videos in the show notes below. The article from Hirsch, as well as this uh, video of uh, the Dutch prime minister being asked. I can add to this because... Uh, I mean, in Germany, nobody asked the chancellor. The chancellor hasn't responded yet. Uh, that's mostly because he's been out and about at the European uh, Council. Um, but there were comments from the left wing and the right wing. Uh, so both parties that are perceived more radical within the parliament. And um, both of them were basically going to the same direction, saying that, hey, if this really happened, something should be done about it. And this is where we're already getting into the bubble, because what's the dynamic here? I mean, it's, it's, isn't it a bit problematic? that as soon as something comes up that maybe isn't as mainstream, that it gets pushed to the extremes immediately with this taken less serious? Because I feel like that's what has been happening here. Absolutely. And this is a long pattern that if in 2003 or 2002 you ask critical questions about the war on terror, you would have been on the extreme side of politics. Now, 20 years later, it seems perfectly mainstream and normal to be critical of the war on terror. The same can be said with other such events. What you see is a bubble where the mainstream has certain truths. And those truths are, in this case, the United States is our ally. We're fighting against Russia. By the way, we're not, but that is the bubble that we're in. We're fighting against Russia through a proxy war in Ukraine. We are perfectly happy to critically look at what Russia does and how they damage our um, our geopolitical interest, but we feel incredibly psychologically reluctant to critically look at the United States. Um, 
that is not just related to Ukraine. It's also related that, to the idea that we still believe the United States to be the savior of the Cold War. We still believe that the United States is a source for good in the world. Um, by the way, I'm not arguing that they're a source of, for bad in the world. I'm just saying that we have a overly positive interpretation of U.S. foreign policy from a European perspective. And um, you've got this, this establishment that is very closely connected to the United States, right? You've got parliamentarians who talk to senators in the United States, who talk to the U.S. embassy, who are part of NATO, who are part of all these dynamics that create this bubble of we are the establishment and we should trust each other. And then the extreme sides of parliaments, they're not part of that bubble. They're being frowned upon by that establishment. And so they feel much more comfortable functioning through that bubble. That doesn't mean that their political perspectives or their analysis is somehow correct or that their view of the world is in some, some way a constructive uh, way of dealing with the challenges we face. In the case of Baudet and Forum for Democracy, the ones we just discussed, that's very much not the case. But they are happy to puncture through that establishment bubble. And, and then you get into the uncomfortable situation that we're in right now, that we are quoting people that we don't feel comfortable quoting because they're the only ones who are asking these questions. And so far, only extreme parties have covered this. But this still doesn't really answer my, my question. I mean, wh why is the media not talking about this? I mean, as I mentioned in the fact sheet, there were some reactions, mostly dismissing them. Um, as conspiratorial, but why are these questions that are coming from the media? Because I feel like, yes, there there's an ongoing investigation, and maybe you, you want to wait until the investigation is, is over, but why are there no media investigations into this? Like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm asking myself this simply because I don't have an answer. And it's it's an extremely valid question, and it's it's almost frustrating to observe this, right? Because it is journalistically a really, really interesting topic. Um, without maybe having all the facts, it is frustrating that someone like Hirsch produces this on his own website, whether he's right or wrong, we don't know, but that he talks about this, but that there hasn't been a New York Times report, there hasn't been a Guardian report, there hasn't been a continental European news agency delving into this and, and, and um, doing its journalistic job. Now, you could, of course, argue that uh, the responsible thing to do and the principled approach is to say, look, we're not going to delve into a topic that is now being investigated by three different governments. Once they publish their report, we'll, we'll read it and then we'll do our journalistic duty. But surely that is not exactly how a free media is supposed to work, right? A free media can't just wait until governments produce evidence and then say, okay, now... Um, we're going to take that as our foundation. No, it's up to journalists to puncture through that governmental bubble and to make sure that um, power is held to account, right? That we keep a check and a balance, if you like, within society and not overly depend on state interests, if you like, um, to put it in that sense. And so that principled approach doesn't seem to really correspond to the journalistic duty that's out there. And the best answer I can give to the question you raise is that they are also very much part of this bubble. The, the populist parties like to pretend that there's a conspiracy. It's not a conspiracy. It's not newspaper editors just agreeing with mainstream politicians, oh, we're going to go hush-hush on this. That's not how it works. There's no conspiracy 
conspiracy there. But journalists want to be responsible and they're currently convinced that we're in a war situation. They're currently convinced that the United States is on the right side of history, that Russia is on the wrong side of history. And therefore, they feel very, very uncomfortable going down a route that might actually undermine, if you like, the Ukraine war effort, right? And therefore you see a huge lack of investigative reporting when it comes to Western behavior towards Russia and Ukraine. See, on a separate note here, I mean, because it's it's getting close to, to the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, and you see more and more even leaders, you know, politicians, and here I'm specifically talking about the German foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, falling into this trap. Um, because she, in front of the European Council uh, a few weeks ago, even said, we are at war with Russia, which is factually not true, which obviously the foreign ministry then quickly corrected afterwards. But, you know, that thinking has now arrived within leaders and within people. And this is where my, my, my next thought and question comes from. Let's say there would have been an, an investigative article from Hirsch pointing at Russia being like, oh, there's there's some evidence here from a source from the Russian government who was involved in the operational planning that it was them. How do you think the reaction would have would, would be different? Then certainly newspapers would be much more comfortable than they have been so far to highlight this, right? They're, they're, these past couple of days have seen a huge reluctance in even covering the story. They have, but in very minimal and very critical terms towards Hirsch with lots of ad hominem attacks against Hirsch, uh, loads of uh, ways of undermining his credibility. Whereas if it had been the other way around, it would have all been about, hey, this is confirming our perspective of Putin. Of course, Putin blew up the pipeline because that fits into how we view the world. It is comforting to our worldview. It doesn't challenge our assumptions, our foundations. And so you can, if, if there had been significant evidence even before Hirsch, that Russia was the perpetrator of this act, then of course the media would have been all on it with Newsnight having a whole segment on it and, and, and the New York Times doing a huge piece on how Russia managed to blow up the pipeline. But of course there is no real evidence pointing towards Russia at the moment at least. Um, and uh, the evidence that is pointing is going towards Washington. And that is something that makes us highly, highly uncomfortable. And why are we so uncomfortable about this? Is it because, I mean, you already mentioned this, because the United States is our friend? I mean, so now speaking from a purely European perspective, I understand that from a U.S. perspective, you might, I mean, we discussed this in the last episode, you don't want to be critical of yourself and you certainly don't want to be critical of the winners. But then what's the European reluctance? I mean, wh where is this coming from? Is it because we depend so much on the US on the security and military uh, aspect? Well, it is absolutely true that we're very closely integrated, right? And when I say integrated, it is not Europe and the United States coming together, but it is the United States having a military framework and Europe sort of joining that. As NATO is basically a US operation where Europeans can also pitch in, right? And as a result, uh, the military cooperation between the two is very close, between Europe and the United States is very close, but it's also uneven. And this is particularly visible when with relatively smaller countries, Norway might be a good example of that, uh, but I'm, for example, familiar with the, the Netherlands. And what you clearly see is a deep admiration for the United States as sort of the big brother of the relationship, the one who keeps everyone else safe. 
And when the United States asks something militarily or just from a security perspective, intelligence agencies ask something from a country like the Netherlands, you see a clear eagerness to be part of that. Um, again, this was very clear in the war on terror, but there are many other such examples that the individuals working within intelligence agencies, the individuals working within the military are delighted to be part of the big boys club, to be asked by the big brother to cooperate and to feel needed by the big brother. And therefore, as a result, they are much less likely to ask some critical questions first. They're much less likely to check whether what they're asked is actually in their country's or the state's interest. If a small country, let's say Lithuania, were to ask something from Norway or the Netherlands, I can guarantee you that there would be a whole process before that request is approved. But if the United States asks something, everyone jumps up and is, is, will, will be delighted to please the Pentagon in any way possible, right? And that leads to these kinds of dynamics where the United States can get away with things that any other country wouldn't be able to do. Because the US does have a long track record of spreading half-truths in Europe, you know, and acting even against European interests. Right, the United States has one main goal, and that is to protect what they perceive to be US interests. And very often they coincide with European interests, and there's genuine cooperation, open cooperation, trustworthy cooperation. But at times the United States will go against European interests. Uh, they have been very, very clear about, for example, Nord Stream, and um, they never wanted Nord Stream in the first place. And if they find a way to block Nord Stream, they will do so. And here, it's very possible that they found a way. That goes directly against European interests, but Europeans are very uncomfortable with admitting that. And examples of this, I mean, so sorry to our listeners to bring up the German perspective here again, is in 2014, there was this huge scandal that the NSA was, you know, spying on Europeans. Okay, that's, well... Let's be honest, I think we're all aware of this, and I'm not sure whether people, citizens would mind, but they were also spying on Angela Merkel's phone at the time. You know, So Obama had a direct line to Angela Merkel, not picking up his own phone, but picking up her phone, basically, which is one of those examples you know, where then the German reaction to this was, friends don't do that with each other. Please stop. Um, and that, that was it. I think another example here is uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Two years ago, where the United States decided very quickly to leave Afghanistan, leaving the European partners uh, scrambling to gather their own pieces together and their own troops together, uh, trying to leave the, the country, resulting ultimately in chaos. Are there any, any other examples that you can think about where, where U.S. interests were going against European interests? Well, there's a whole long list of uh, the United States lying, essentially, during the war on terror with black ops sites, uh, with uh, how prisoners of war or people who were... Um, called by European military in Afghanistan or in Iraq were then treated by the United States, whether torture was applied or not. All those kinds of things uh, were very visible afterwards, but at the time, Europeans were very reluctant to investigate it further. So as long as the United States said, hey, hey no, 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 don't worry, we've got your back, we understand you, Europeans would um, follow instructions, and only afterwards it came clear, became clear that the United States had basically been directly lying to European governments about what they did. This is not in itself something that makes the United States a bad partner. It's just a example of how even partners sometimes choose their own agenda and their own interest. And maybe Europe should 
start dealing with this from a more practical perspective, right? And I think from here, it is only natural to transition into the next category. And can you explain to our listeners, what is the problem? So I think that there's two dynamics at play here when we're talking about the damage. Um, so there's a short-term dynamic and a long-term one. So in the short term, let's say uh, the article, you know, um, uh, turns out that there was some truth to it uh, and the United States was involved in this. What would be the damage here um, to the transatlantic relationship? Well, there is no good outcome here, right? If you look at it from a European perspective, um, the, the pipeline is blown up. Um, if the United States indeed is responsible, Europe has two possible reactions to that. Either aggressively going after the United States for doing this, and this is not a small thing, right? This is not simply one case of an Iraqi prisoner being tortured by the United States or mistreated by the United States. And for that person, that was horrible. But from a bigger perspective, you know, Europeans wouldn't care that much about it. But this is a really, really big item. So then for Europe to go aggressively after the United States for doing this would be incredibly damaging, would be incredibly damaging to European interests because it would mean that all of a sudden they're going to break this protective layer that the United States provides with them, uh, provides them with. The other option for the Europe is to kind of ignore it or to do it in back channels to say, look, we're not going to talk about this publicly. We have uh, raised this with the U.S. ambassador and uh, we are uh, still convinced that the transatlantic alliance is strong and is a fundamental part of our foreign policy. And there the damage would then be that Europe essentially minimizes its own self-worth and its own self-respect and basically signals to Washington, look, you can get away with this. You can get away with deeply, deeply damaging our economic interests, our geopolitical interests. You can, you just destroyed European infrastructure and there is no consequence of the, to speak of. And as a result, you're going to probably do this again in the future because you know that we are weak. And then when it comes to the long term, I mean... I remember in one of the past episodes on, on Ukraine, we discussed the fact that NATO is now stronger than ever because uh, it's more united than ever. Um, before it was called brain dead by French President Emmanuel Macron. It's, I mean, I assume that somehow, you know, in the long term, the transatlantic alliances, alliance is going to drift apart here. And will NATO then be brain dead one day? Well, yeah, the, the Ukraine war hasn't necessarily made NATO a source for geopolitical goods in Europe, um, but it, the Ukraine war has hit the problematic nature of NATO, right? So uh, what this will do in the long term, it will reinforce a process that, that began in the 1990s where the transatlantic alliance is already drifting apart, regardless of how Europe reacts in the short term. NATO and the Transatlantic Alliance are on their deathbed. And this might be a very prolonged deathbed, but at some point it's just no longer possible to deny reality that the interests of Washington are less and less coinciding with the interests of Brussels or Paris or Berlin. And this is another step into long-term damage to that relationship. 
Now, it might seem weird to say this for people who, who think of NATO right now as the heroic defenders of Ukraine or the, you know, the heroic defenders of Europe. But if you really puncture through the hype of the day, what you will notice is that actually it's becoming more and more an emperor without clothes. There is just no 21st century future where Europe and the United States can continue doing this as they are doing because they simply do not have the same agenda. Now I want to drift our attention away from US-Europe uh, relations, because let's say this is true and the United States actually is behind this. It happens to come out at some point I don't know, there's a whistleblower or one of the investigations of the European countries actually finds this. This is still a, this is an act of war, right? I mean, you're attacking another country's infrastructure. And as far as I'm concerned, Nord Stream is property of, the, of, of Russia. Uh, so is this then a declaration of war between the United States and Russia, or are both superpowers aware enough of each other's nuclear arsenal, and this is, you know, at some point going to fade away? Well, that's that's exactly it, right? So Ukraine essentially is a proxy war uh, between the United States and Russia, and Europe seems to sort of be drifting along with it without really knowing which what approach to take here. Uh, and it, there's a very clear understanding, both in Moscow and Washington, that they need to avoid this escalating too far, because that would exactly be devastation all around. In that sense, uh, Russia has played it much more calmly. Right? If Russia knows, and uh, again, we, we don't know anything for sure, but the, it seems very unlikely that Russia did this. And that means that it's very much more likely that the United States did this. And Russia has been relatively laid back with respect to this because they don't want it to go much further. And neither does the United States. So whether Russia and the United States find continue finding this balance um, is an important question, but it's it depends on their ability to look at the bigger picture. Uh, what is much more interesting for us is what does Europe do here? Is Europe actually happy to still continue being part of this? And the reason why they are part of it is the Western bubble. But how long is this Western bubble going to dictate European attitudes to these events? Because it was a hugely, hugely aggressive action that was taken, regardless who did it. And then ultimately, I mean, so if neither side is really interested in exposing uh, you know, the other one, if both the United States and Russia are very content with keeping this at an unknown level, because it will lead to no further escalation. Um, so, so what happens then? If if there's, you know, the conclusion of the three reports will be, oh yes, it was a deliberate explosion. Um, we can't tell who it was. We don't know. Maybe governments are actively saying, you know, oh, well, let's not publish this because I don't know. It would lead to public outcry. And nobody wants this. I mean, what's the damage of that? Is if it basically never gets resolved publicly? What it means is deep underlying tensions that, if you like, darken international relations that are, you know, it's, it's, maybe you can compare it to a relationship where two people have been married for way too long and they really don't like each other anymore, but they don't, they're afraid of the escalation of what a divorce would look like and all the damage that the divorce would bring. And so the, the relationship starts rotting and rotting from the inside uh, with very scary scenarios that that could lead to. Exactly. Europe doesn't know what to do. Um, and the last, I mean, thought I want to bring up in, in this category is how do leaders process this? 
So, so let's say you're you're the you're the German Chancellor, um, and you find I don't know in the investigation you you might find some evidence that this was not Russia. So you need to start looking into the rest of the world. Who was it? You know, it wasn't us, most likely. Um, it wasn't really the Ukrainians because they 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 don't really know how to do this. So they do the stakeholder analysis like we did in episode twenty two, and at some point they come to the conclusion: oh, it may it may have been our friends. How do leaders process this on an individual level? Um. Very, I mean, it depends on each leader and and the the political culture that they're in at that time. But typically, they deal with it as a real problem, as something that they have to deal with, but something that they do not want to escalate because it would break their comfortable establishment kind of culture surrounding them, right? So um, if you are Mark Rutte, the prime minister of the Netherlands, and let's say that he already got some information that it was, in fact, the United States or likely to be the United States. Then you're really annoyed <laughs> and uh, you will talk to your advisors about it. But the last thing you want is to bring this out in the open. Why? Because that would actually create a huge headache for your comfortable atmosphere and environment that that you've been operating within and so then the question becomes not how do we punish the united states but how can we manage this situation you you forget about basic certain principles like the netherlands or germany or our european union has been attacked here you forget about taking a principled stance of okay, this simply cannot continue. We have to do something about it. And instead, you start thinking about how can we manage this in a way that's politically not too problematic? How can we manage it in a way that we can still rely on our un- on the United States support with respect to Ukraine, with respect to NATO, etc.? So you, you start focusing on the small practical managerial questions rather than the big principled issues. And this assumption or this thought process leads back to a reoccurring theme of this podcast is that politicians are no longer leaders, they're no longer leading a country into a direction, but they're becoming more and more managers, which is managing the day-to-day affairs. And if I think about uh, Germany, you know, if, if this if this were to, to break public, you know, that news item, okay, it may have been, you know, someone else than Russia, um, there would be outrage because, I mean, the, the only topic we've had for the past six months is how do you pay your energy bills? Uh, I, I imagine that the majority of the country wouldn't be wouldn't be happy about this, even call for reparations. And there I understand the the ongoing drift, you know, away from the center you know, of the mainstream political parties further off to the left and the right, where I'm pretty sure the left wing party would immediately gain voters because they've been saying it for day, from day one that it was mo- most likely not Russia. And then the right wing would gain as well because people are just unhappy. Yeah, I, people are increasingly fed up with this and the establishment doesn't seem to understand that. They, they, they find it increasingly difficult to understand that people don't necessarily like the extremes, but they are... In, fed up with a center of politics that doesn't seem to deal with the principled items that society faces and instead are just problem solvers and are all the time talking about let's be reasonable, let's take the middle ground. Whereas the reality that people live in increasingly is not very reasonable. People increasingly are fed up with what they see around them. And that pushes them to really ugly parties on the extremes. And that is a tragedy for Western society and our future uh, political landscape. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, the the real income uh, of of the average family in Germany has decreased for the last three years. You know, because any growth in your in your in your wages has been eaten up by inflation. And I'm pretty sure that people will remember this and will turn these negative emotions then towards whomever they think is responsible for it. Right now, it's easy because you can say it's Russia. And, you know, Russia, Putin, he's, he's, he's irresponsible. So we need to stick together. But I imagine, you know, that this this anger can be channeled into a different direction um, and maybe a direction that will be even more, you know, destructive towards Western society. And with this very dark outlook on the future, let's actually move on into the category that talks about it. And what now? Um, because what does this then mean for Europe? I mean, so for the last few months, uh, any you know international affairs student and anyone working in international affairs uh, from from Europe has heard strategic autonomy over and over again. That Europe, you know, since the start of COVID, they want to be strategically autonomous on on the production of uh, medication, um, now on energy and and everything else. So is that going to be, you know, a new trend that Europe is going to decouple itself more and more from the United States, even without, you know, any of these allegations uh, being true? Yeah, that that is a long-term inevitability in the sense that the reality is that, as I said before, Washington and Europe are no longer seeing eye to eye with respect to the kind of world that they want to live in in the, in the next 50 years. And as you said correctly, we... we do not have to base that on the validity of this Hirsch article. It, 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 it would just be another accelerator of this process uh, if it turns out to be the United States who did it. E- Europe and the United States are going to have to redefine their relationship. And one of the tragedies of the Ukraine war is that now it takes the urgency away from that, right? We, we really need to have a conversation on both sides of the Atlantic How do we look at each other? Is that West still a thing or not? And the proper answer is not really, not in the way that the 20th century shaped it. Can we work, as Americans, can we work with Europeans? Of course we can. And as Europeans, can we work with Americans? Of course, but not in the dependent, sort of uneven methods that has been employed for the past 80 years. At some point, that is just no longer feasible. And so the future is, a, this drift apart. And the question is, are we going to do that in a properly envisioned, properly identified way? Or is it just going to happen over time with an in- increase in unfortunate incidents such as Nord Stream? And you already mentioned uh, Ukraine. Um, but what's like, let's let's move away from seeing Ukraine as a patch. But what's the influence on, of this onto the Ukraine war? Um, well, in the in the short term, not much because governments are actually uncomfortable <laughs> with dealing with it because they, they try to keep it hush hush. But of course, in the long run, you're going to have two different perspectives on what should happen with Ukraine, assuming that Russia doesn't win the war, um, whatever winning means. The United States is going to want Ukraine to be incorporated into the European models, into the EU, into because that has a double function for the United States. It um, strengthens their containment of Russia. And at the same time, it weakens the internal structures within um, European cohesion. And because there's no doubt that that if Kiev were to were to become part of the European Union, the nature of the European Union would change. That would be in the interest of the United States. It wouldn't be in the interest of Brussels. 
as it is right now. Um, and therefore, uh, you're going to have this sort of two different visions, despite of what von der Leyen is saying about uh, Ukraine entering the EU. Uh, you're going to have these two different visions that over time are going to clash with each other. And then moving away from these hypothetical scenarios, so what's the actual future with regards to this article? Um, are we going to disregard it and are we going to forget about it very quickly? Uh, and more importantly, what should we be doing? Yeah, the, the key here and for this episode as well is that we live in a world where very often our political narrative and our media narrative are detached from reality, from a rational analysis of what's happening around us. And regardless of what evidence someone like Hirsch brings to the table, our society needs to deal with these questions without those filters that right now the Western bubble creates, right? So here is a really interesting, important issue. It's likely that pipelines were blown up. Now the question is, who did that? And that is important. That is not a small issue. We need to move towards a world where... Um, media go after that even if they believe that the 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 answer might be uncomfortable the answer might be our long-standing partner across the pond right uh, we need politicians who actually are happy to take a principled approach of in this and don't just want to keep the establishment from being becoming too uncomfortable those are the those are the main challenges that we're facing both in the united states as well as in europe that's that reduction of that western bubble that's betrays our ability to actually rationally analyze and discuss and instead makes us live in a fairy tale world where in the long run we will all be hurt. And this seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on the Nord Stream sabotage. If you have any questions, comments or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side. Balder, which closing quote did you pick for us today? This is a record because it's only a three-word quote. Uh, and it was used by President Ronald Reagan during the Cold War in relationship with nuclear disarmament towards the Soviet Union. And interestingly enough, it is actually a Russian proverb. And it's very apt for what we've just been saying. And it goes, trust, but verify. Mm -hmm.